This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Andrew Harvey. Andrew is a poet, writer, teacher, and mystic. He's a former fellow at All Souls College, Oxford, and is the founder of the Institute for Sacred Activism. He's the author and editor of many books, including The Direct Path, Son of Man, and most recently, The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism. With Sounds True, Andrew has created many audio programs, including a new 13-part audio series called Divine Rebels, Saints, Mystics, Holy Change Agents, and You, a program that he co-created with Carolyn Mace, where they give the listener a training course in finding the inspiration and courage to answer one's own call and become a force of love in the world. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Andrew and I spoke about what is the whole mystical truth. We talked about the power of devotion and adoration, and why we need the fire of devotional practices, as well as the coolness of contemplation. We also talked about the dark night of the soul, and how in classic mystical literature, there are actually two dark nights we must pass through. We also talked about shadow work and how we need to do shadow work no matter where we are on the path. Here's my conversation with Divine Rebel, Andrew Harvey. To begin with, Andrew, I'd love to know how you define a divine rebel. We all know about people who rebel because they're stuck in adolescent behavior, you know, rebels without a cause. So what makes a rebel a divine rebel? Well, I think when you have a really authentic, mind-blowing, gut-blowing, heart-blowing-out mystical experience, you connect with a world of shatteringly beautiful power and justice and truth and love and clarity and then you look around at the ghastly, troubled, chaotic, violent, awful world that the ego creates, including, of course, your own ego and your shadow. And immediately you are engaged in a war against that side of yourself that prevents you from entering into the beauty you have known. So Divine Rebellion begins with authentic mystical experience, continues through the 
rough and tumble of the working out of the path. And then what happens is the mystical experience becomes grounded in your mind and grounded in your heart and increasingly grounded in the living experience of your whole body and being, what happens is that you become an agent of that fire, of that light, of that clarity. And that inevitably turns you into an outlaw, into a marginal person, into someone who has glimpsed another world which needs to be created by your actions, by your whole being. And that is what turns you into a divine rebel. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, this new series with Sounds True, you recorded along with Carolyn Mace, who I know is a dear friend and a divine rebel compatriot. And I'm curious how you see this relationship (laughs) between two divine rebels and their capacity to co-create together, what you see is the importance in that divine rebellion relationship. Well, I would love to talk about my relationship with Caroline because she's been such a huge power in my life, such a dear friend and such a soul friend. And I think perhaps the most significant part of our relationship is the way that we've constantly encouraged each other to be as fierce and clear and passionate as our hearts truly are. Caroline needs very little encouragement, I have to say, but sometimes I think she shocks even herself by the intensity of her divine fury at what's happening in the world, at how people are doing nothing, at how lazy and self-absorbed people are. And I have encouraged her increasingly to just accept that this is a divine gift that she has, this great sword of light that she can bring down at her very best, which is often a great sword of light that cuts through a lot of the fla-fla-fla of the New Age, a lot of the inherited dualism of the mystical traditions, the patriarchal mystical traditions. So I think that what I brought to her, as well as I hope tenderness and compassion and infinite regard for her brilliance, is this encouragement to be completely herself, because I love it when she's completely herself. She's so exciting, and her perceptions are so thrilling. And I think what she's done for me is, in some ways, the opposite, because I think I have been at home with my own ferocity and my own fury and rebellion against the whole nightmare that we're creating, which is now coming to be potentially terminal, and that what she's always encouraged me to do is to calm down, ground, become more pragmatic and practical, more focused in the way I express myself, and more truly compassionate and helpful in the way that I offer the advice that comes out of my molten pain at what's going on, my heartbreak. And she totally honors that fury and that heartbreak, but she has got one of her greatest gifts is that she is so able to communicate so clearly and so down-homely to people so that they can really get the truth of what she's saying. And I have tended to be so obsessed with the grandeur of what I'm seeing that I have sometimes not been able to ground it properly, and that's Caroline's tremendous contribution to me. So I think we both, in different ways, made each other more complete, more effective, more powerful. And that, I think, is what sacred relationship between divine rebels 
can do. And I think we've been modeling it for years. And I think what was so wonderful about the experience of making the set was really experiencing that in a very rich way, because here we are talking about some of the greatest divine rebels of history, people so close to our own work, our own hearts, our own enterprise, our own mission, and talking about them together in ways that effortlessly overlapped each other. So it was a wonderful experience and a wonderful confirmation of the alchemy that we have both been working on. I think part of my curiosity about these divine rebel partnerships is that sometimes people think, you know, I've had a huge mystical experience in my life and I feel somewhat alone, isolated, alienated in that. And yet here you are modeling and also creating from a place of divine rebel partnership. And I'm wondering what you would say to that person out there who perhaps feels somewhat on their own, isolated. Well, I would say three things, I think. I would say you can have the most extraordinary relationship outside time and beyond time with the great divine rebels of the past. Never underestimate those sacred relationships that stream to you towards eternity. For example, I have found in my own life that I have a sacred relationship with Rumi and Jesus in which I My soul makes love to both of them and receives enormous help from both of them. I know that they are both rays of the one fire, but they're rays with very subtly different textures and radiances and powers. And I know that there's an impersonal person behind this tremendous transmission. And so I would truly advise that person to start plunging deeply into the mystic or prophet or teacher that truly inspires them the most and start up this sacred relationship beyond time, in time, that the Catholics call the communion of saints and that is known in all the mystical traditions. Look at the way in which Teresa of Avila loved Jesus. Jesus was the one who gave her the courage to be the rebel she needed to be because she was tremendously alone until she found John of the Cross. Look at the way in which Ramakrishna was tremendously inspired by the 18th century poet Ramprasad, which he quotes again and again, and I'm sure had a very deep, eternal relationship with. Look at the way in which Rumi had a relationship with Shams at its most intense, perhaps, after Shams died, when Shams arrived in him and spoke through him in these extraordinary poems, which he often signed with Shams's name, or the with the name Khamush, which means the silent one, which implies that who is speaking is this tremendous force that arrives from Shams and has Shams's face inside him. The, this mystical relationship beyond time is a very important discovery for all people who want to go forward, so plunge into it. The second thing I would say to anybody who is alone is that they aren't alone, because part of the path is meant to be alone in this way so that they can go deeper and deeper and deeper into sacred practice, so that they can travel deeper and deeper into the intensity and abandon of adoration of the beloved, so that the greatest miracle of all can be revealed to them that they are, as Rumi said, the beloved's beloved, and then you realize you are never alone. 
there's a wonderful poem of Rumi's when he talks about, know that whenever you are in a bed of pain, the beloved is right by your bedside. Love's companion stays hidden in secret, and the true lover is never alone. So a loneliness comes to drive you deeper into authentic practice, which reveals over time, if you stay in there, if you work hard, that the beloved is with you always, and that the whole universe is revealing that connection through synchronicity, through amazing small things that continually give you signs of this protecting, all-embracing, all-nourishing presence. And the third thing I would say to anyone who was alone and yearning for this kind of sacred partnership that Carol and I have been privileged to have, and don't forget we didn't find each other until we were in our 50s, and we're the same age, actually I'm older than her, which I immensely enjoy, <laughs> it gives me, I'm six months older than her, so I'm, she always tells me I'm her elder brother. She doesn't act like my younger sister always, but she does tell me that I'm her elder brother. But we didn't find each other until our 50s. The other thing that someone can do is to truly pray for it. Really, really pray. Pray that you will find the person that you need to complete your soul's journey. And I think that there are so many examples in mystical history of people who have found their soul's companion. And you must be encouraged by that, like Jesus and Mary Magdalene and Jesus and John. You must be encouraged by that and long for that. And then let God choose the right one. Because in my experience, I chose people before Caroline who weren't really strong enough to be my true soul rebel partner companion because I was so desperate to find people with whom I could have this kind of communion. So you have to be patient, you have to pray, you have to long, and then at exactly the right moment in your evolution, through the grace of God, exactly the right person will appear. And I think this is a mystical law. I'm curious, Andrew, to know more about this first type of relationship that you mentioned, which is a relationship with a mystical force from history, because I know this has been a big part of your life, deep relationships with Rumi, with Jesus, with other figures. How would you suggest to somebody who maybe feels drawn to a mystical figure, but isn't sure how to deepen that relationship. And I mean, is it just their imagination? I mean, I'm, I'm relating to, you know, something I'm making up. How does it become real in my life? It's a wonderful question, very difficult question to answer. But I'd like to begin just by talking about my own relationship with probably the person that I've had the most transcendent love affair on this level with. And apart from Rumi and Jesus, somebody I actually met and adored when he was alive and was adored by Father Bede Griffiths. And I want to tell a story which really changed my whole understanding and initiated me really at the deepest level into the amazing blessing of such a relationship. When I heard that Bede had died, I'd only known him really for three weeks when we made a film about his life and he and I felt 
spiritually in love together. And then I went back when he was dying to be with him when he was dying. And it was a momentous and shattering and extraordinary experience. Then I went back to America because I had to teach. And in May, four months later, I heard that he had died. And I was at Big Sur in the place that I'd met him originally. And I was just devastated by this because... It was terrible to think that I would never see this amazingly beautiful and holy man again and never enjoy the rapture and the, and the peace and the clarity of our communion. And I went down to the sea at Big Sur and I started crying. And then I heard a voice. I don't hear voices very often. I heard a voice, and it was unmistakably his voice because it was gentle and it was English. And it said, don't exaggerate, look up. And the sun was bursting over the sea and this ray of sunlight coming towards me. And I heard him say, I am a ray of the eternal sun and I will always be with you. Just turn to me when you need me. I am always, always with you. And then about seven months I met in Paris an incredibly gifted clairvoyant, one of the few that I've really found authentic, and she works with the police forces of Europe, and she was personally trained by Padre Pio, who considered her to be um, amongst the two or three people he thought of as his successor. So she was trained by one of the greatest healers and clairvoyants and psychics of all time. And she became a very, very close friend. And one day she said, it's so extraordinary. There's this man in what looks like orange curtains, bead, wore the robes of a sannyasi. He's very old, and he's British, and he has white hair. And he's saying something to me, which I don't at all understand, but I'll report it to you. He's saying, the experience you had by the sea in California is more than illusion. And the great joke in that was that more than illusion was the name of the film company that had made the biography about Bede. So he was transmitting to me through her from the eternal the secret of immortality, and he was also transmitting to me the secret of this transcendent union of souls that have met in the deepest kind of love and how it continues beyond time, beyond space, beyond what we call life and how it is one of the great, great sources of nourishment and protection. So I wanted to tell that story just to give people real hope out there that this is not something that only, that happens to just rarefied souls. It's something that anybody who turns to a saint or a prophet or someone who has realized unity with the divine in any way can experience and will experience. So you ask me, how can somebody actually do this? First, I think they should, if they want this kind of relationship, a person should ask himself or herself, who are the spiritual poets or teachers or great composers or great mystical poets and artists that I truly feel most resonate with my own deepest temperament? And make a short list, and it will be a short list, because you can truly, truly admire many great teachers and many great revelations, but in my own experience, I find that the deep emotional and spiritual bond between you and another is there are very few who really resonate at that deepest level where you recognize the most fundamental passion of your life 
explored and exposed in a much more glorious form in the other, an amazingly open form in the other. You're just a little rose trying to open, but they are the great rich red rose streaming their wild perfume. I'm talking to my own temperament. But there, you could be have a very much cooler spiritual temperament and find it in the Buddha, for example. I love the Buddha and I revere the Buddha, but the Buddha has never been for me somebody that I yearned to have this union with beyond time. So you make this this list, and then what I suggest is that you truly read about them, you explore their lives, you read the best sources about them, read their work again and again and again, and take phrases from it that truly leap out at you and truly haunt you and truly make you drunk. And then you get some kind of representation of them, perhaps a photograph of an image or a statue or a um, a painting, and you start speaking inwardly in the heart to that photograph or painting or statue. I remember when I was going through my first big awakening with Mira, and I was seeing the divine light all the time, and I was in a state of ecstasy for many, many months. I had on my desk a photograph of two people that were very crucial for me and have remained so, Ramana Maharshi and Ramakrishna. My father was the policeman in charge of Ramana Maharshi for two years, so I've always had this extraordinarily personal link with him. And Ramakrishna completely destroyed in the best way my whole life when I first read um, the Gospel of Ramakrishna. And I had these two photographs on my desk and as I was deepening this experience I would gaze into the eyes of Ramana Maharshi and into the eyes of Ramakrishna and speak wordlessly from the depths of my heart to them in adoration and their whole presence seemed to pour into me. This is an experience I think many seekers at a certain level have had and it's the most amazing experience. So start that kind of relationship, risk it, and you'll find that the forces that emanate from these beings, which are all rays of the one, will start operating on you and in you in a way that's both extremely impersonal, because in the end, they're like the emanations that we're encouraged to create in Buddhist meditation, in Mayana Buddhist meditation, they are forms of the void and they dissolve back into the void but they also have a very personal rasa a very personal taste and that's the taste of that particular realization and that will be given to you and infused into you and don't believe me try it you'll find that it's an extraordinary experience and it really gives one great faith in two things it gives one great faith in the power of divine realization to transcend time and space, which is a huge encouragement, and it gives you great faith in the mercy of the divine itself, which allows you to have this relationship with faces of it so that you can come more and more into the formless and into the self, into the void, into shunyata. It's a very, very extraordinary dance. Now, Andrew, in my own experience, I can testify that what you're saying 
is true that these kinds of relationships can be developed with mystical figures and that they feel like a two-way experience. It doesn't just feel like me in a mirror. It feels like I'm actually relating with something. But yet it defies rationality. I can't quite understand what's going on here. So could you... Well, you'll never understand it. You won't? I thought maybe you could explain it to me, Brother Andrew. I was hoping. But anyway, go ahead. Well, I I, I can make an explanation and I'll try, but I don't think in the end... There, perhaps it's something like this. Perhaps it is that when someone achieves divine realization and unifies themselves in the one, they birth a face of the one, that the one appears in them in a new way because the one is both totally static and endlessly fecundly dynamic, so endlessly reproducing itself in subtly different ways, just as it does in reality. Every moment is a different configuration of the absolute. And that when this happens, there's a sort of smile at the heart of the divine, because now there's one more being for people struggling to realize their true identity to relate to. So that that being then can become a vehicle of the one's mercy and magic. And that is can't be explained rationally, but it can be experienced. And I think what also happens, I don't know whether this happened to you, Tammy, but when I was um, in the heat of my love for Ramakrishna, which was never abated, but there was a period in which I couldn't stop reading his work because it was so brilliant and so clear and so soaked with the wisdom of the mother that, which I desperately craved he would appear to me in dreams once he appeared and he really berated me he said the problem with your teaching he said is that you're speaking to the fish speak to the sea don't worry about what they're thinking some of them won't get it some of them will half get it some of them will get it completely, but that's not your business. Your business is to speak to your beloved, to speak out towards the one from the depths of your love of the one, and then those who will resonate will resonate. But those who won't, that's not your job. God will look after them. And it was a huge help, because being a natural people pleaser and being aware of the kind of swirl of psychologies in a room can deeply, deeply hobble you if you're trying to tell the full mystical truth, which I've been trying to tell for since I really started teaching. I mean, not always successfully, obviously. So that was a tremendous revelation that if you have this, if you dare this kind of relationship, it will permeate your psyche, and then sometimes it will come actually in visions and dreams. I've had two meetings through me, and the last one, I didn't see his face, but he was holding the world and he showed it tremendously darkened by the horror that was spreading everywhere. But he also then tilted it and it became gold. And what I understood that he was showing me is that this tremendous darkness that we're going through is a necessary purification. It's a necessary ordeal. It's a necessary shattering of the false human ego. And that it could potentially prepare a wholly new way of being and doing anything, in fact, nothing less than the birth of the divine human. And I realized that 
why he is so central to so many people now is that he's coming to us with the full information of the death rebirth process, the crucifixion resurrection process. So it was a tremendous help and a tremendous source of consolation and comfort. And it came to me from the divine in terms of the one that I loved. But if you, for example, love Shantideva or love um, one of the great Mahayana Buddhist teachers who have such unique personalities, I think Shantideva is a good example of, he has all the usual forms of Buddhist teaching in his work, but he has a unique intensity of pain, of the pain of the world and of the horror of the ego and of the terrible suffering that's created. If you resonate with him, then I bet he will come to you. The, the one, the formless void, will emanate him out of mercy to you to take you deeper into that part of you that resonates so deeply with him so that it can be taken to another level. Now, Andrew, you said something, you used a phrase, and it definitely went right into me. You said throughout your whole teaching life, what you've been wanting to do, although you haven't always been successful, but the motivation is telling the full mystical truth. So what does that mean? What is the full mystical truth? I think the full mystical truth is that human beings are divine and that we have a divine identity with the self or with the one or whatever you call it. All words are inadequate. And that that is the fundamental truth of our nature. And the other truth is that the divine is absolute love at its core, absolute knowledge and absolute love and absolute bliss, all fused in a tremendous mystery. And that whatever happens to us is a reflection of that. Even the harshest things, when seen in that perspective and endured in that perspe- with that perspective, can become revelatory of new levels of consciousness and new, and new levels of surrender, which lead to much higher levels of wisdom. I think that is the full mystical truth, and I think that's what all of the great mystical traditions are telling us, and it's a source of tremendous hope and tremendous joy. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, when we started our conversation, I asked you how to define a divine rebel, and you talked about this experience of mystical union that leaves someone forever changed, and over the course and maturation of their life, then, after you've had that kind of taste, a process unfolds, and eventually you're working for that love and justice in the world. I'm curious more about that process and path, because I think a lot of people have a taste of mystical union, but they don't become, quote-unquote, divine rebels. Yes. And so talk a little bit about that maturation process and why someone would or maybe would not grow into a divine rebel. 
Well, I want to make a distinction in the beginning between what I would call, and this is a coarse distinction, but it can be helpful, between the path of knowledge, the path of jnana, the path of union with clarity, the clarity of the divine, which is a very holy path, the path, say, of Ramana Maharshi, the path of a great many Buddhists, the path of the Advaita Vedantins, the path of certain very, very austere and clear and noble Christian mystics like Weisberg, for example. This path will lead to a union with one part of the divine, the clear, eternal, calm, spacious, peaceful part of the divine. There is another path, and that is the path of divine love. And in this path, the ego is burnt away by adoration, the ego is burnt away by ecstasy, the ego is burnt away by heartbreak, great, great heartbreak. And it's this path that tends to produce more than the first path, the rebels, because love is a fierce fire. And as you go deeper and deeper into that fire, that fire possesses you, instructs you, shows you the agony and horror of the world and basically says to you, how dare you continue to just feast off your ecstatic experience? What the hell are you doing with the power I've given you? Why aren't you using this power to go out into the burning world and do something for me? Really establish my love and justice in the world. And this is the path of the great Jewish prophets. This is the path of the prophet Muhammad. This is the path, of course, of Jesus. This is the path of Rumi. This is the path of all of the tremendously potent sacred activists that have risen up in the various traditions. I don't, I'm not saying that they are, one is good and one is bad. I'm saying that the path of Janana tends to produce people whose awakening is gentle whose awakening is spacious. The path of love produces people who have jnana because you can't love without knowing. And the more you know, the more you love. But the emphasis of that path is in bringing out the fire, the fire of divine passion. And that passion is united with peace. It's not a hysterical emotionalism. But it is an agent of transformation within and it demands of you when you've gone deeply into it, that you become an agent of its transforming intensity in the world. And I think that's also the path of the Mahayana, because one of the great things about the Mahayana Buddhist path is that it refuses the separation, the subtle dualism that you find, I think, in Advaita Vedanta and in the Pratyeka Buddha vision. And it says that being separate in awakening from the burning world is in the end a cop-out because the world is suffering so intensely. You must plunge in. You must take the Bodhisattva vows. You must realize what Abhavakita realized when he was about to enter Nirvana and heard the rabbit cry out and said, I will never enter Nirvana until every creature, every sentient being has been liberated. And that is such a noble and amazing path. And it's a path of fire, and path of absolute surrender to love. It's my path, 
so I, I, I speak about it with tremendous awe. And I really honor the path of someone like Ramana Maharshi, and I'm lost in awe at him because I know that he's in superconsciousness and that I know that I have everything to learn from the great peace that emanates from him. And I need, know I need more and more of that peace. But it's the path of love that I love. It's the path of love that I have surrendered to and the path of love that drives me to do the work of sacred activism as well. So that's the first thing I'd like to say. And the second thing is that I think that everything depends in the end on the sincerity of the seeker. A lot of people stop very early on on the path, satisfied with the beginning mystical experiences. They have these flashing lights, they see the Archangel Gabriel, they feel blissful and peaceful. And very often they think, that's it, that's, I've got it, it's here, I am, and now I am a mystic. And they can integrate that quite easily, really, into their previous lives. And so, if you're not truly sincere, and if you're not truly driven by a deep hunger to go deeper and deeper and deeper, whatever it may cost in the core of your life, whatever it may, however it may threaten the actual structures of your previous life, your realization will be frozen there. But if, by the grace of God, or through the grace of your previous lifetimes, or whatever it is, you have inside you something that will not let you rest, that will always drive you deeper, 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 you will find that that path will open onto the path of radical rebellion against the structures of the world. Now, I'm curious, Andrew, how you would respond to this person. This is someone I was speaking with over the weekend who has recently been deeply tuning into expanded states of awareness and said, you know, I feel afraid of how my life might change right now. I feel afraid of what's going to be asked of me in terms of my family and changes and other things. And I'm starting to really feel this call and connect with this greater expanse of being, but I have to tell you, Tammy, I'm afraid. Oh, say I completely understand, first of all. I think anybody who's on an authentic mystical path has felt this very, very often. So I would validate that fear and say, don't be afraid of your fear and don't be ashamed of your fear because it's the natural reaction of the ego being expanded beyond its comfort zone. And the second thing I would say to that person is, if you are truly terrified, and if you are really tempted to shut down, then take that as a sign that you need to go more slowly, that you need to be gentle with yourself. You will find that if you calm down and ground and really start appreciating the divine truth of your life as it is, your life itself will provide you a calm foundation for your ego to expand into this larger truth, and you'll be guided subtly, sweetly, gently, step by step, into being able to integrate what you are coming to know with what you are living. And then I would say, You do, in the end, if you truly want 
to be one with God. Have to find in yourself the courage to let go of everything you've ever understood about yourself and every kind of structure of life that you have made for yourself. But the way to do this is to really deepen your practice of surrender, to really pray deeply, meditate deeply, and awaken deep trust through practices, in my case of adoration and in other people's cases of profound immersion and meditation. And what that will do is to create a kind of mother container for you in which you'll find that the terror will lessen because you realize that what you're becoming more and more in contact with is divine truth, divine love, divine peace, that you can trust it, it will guide you, and it will allow whatever has to happen to happen in a rhythm that may be jagged at times, but will reveal beauty after beauty, astonishment after astonishment. Now, you just said something that I thought was really interesting to me, that in your own practice, the practice of adoration, and for some people it might be immersion in meditation or some other form of practice. And, you know, it's interesting, Andrew, I think that in a way adoration or devotion is a practice that isn't all that well respected, if you will. I mean, it's a strong word to use, but in a contemporary context, it's seen as sort of, well, that's for those, uh, you know, kind of people who cry a lot and get on their knees or something. You know, it's not considered sophisticated in certain circles, the practice of adoration. I'm curious what you think about that. I think it's a catastrophe. I think it's one of the reasons why so many people on a so-called spiritual path are doing absolutely nothing while the world burns to death in a crisis that's potentially terminal. Because I think we have a very great problem now, which is that, by and large, the patriarchal mystical traditions, which have made huge discoveries, of course, and are very noble in very many ways, talk about enlightenment as a kind of profound peace and separation from reality as it burns away, and a serenity above everything. And there is, of course, a great truth in this, but it's a half-truth, because the what I'm finding is that True awakening contains a dance of opposites. It's a dance between great peace and tremendous passion. And you access the great peace through the calm practices, through what I call the cool practices. But doing the cool practices alone could turn you, as it has turned so many people in our very unnew new age, into people who don't seem to care that Antarctica is melting, that the forests are burning, that the two billion people live on less than a dollar a day, that there's a global financial elite creating all sorts of appalling structures that are really strangling life and actually talk about their not caring as if it were enlightenment when in fact it's a kind of very subtle psychosis. So I believe that everyone, and I would love to stress this because I believe this deeply, everyone needs both very profound, cool practices that can unite them with the divine peace, the shanti, the formlessness, the shunyata, the spacious, spacious, detached, radiant calm of the divine from which everything flows, but also to be very sure to have a very deep, 
devotional aspect because that's when you connect with the love nature of the divine, what I would call the mother side of God. And that's where you are transformed to become connected to the world from an awakened place. And that's where you can become focused on radical action that expresses your sacred experience, which is now essential for the future of the planet. So I think one of the great problems of our time, and it's something that is being talked about far too little, is the inadequacy of a patriarchal vision of enlightenment that doesn't include the mother passion, the mother engagement, the mother compassion, the mother action on behalf of suffering beings. To me, Mahayana at its best, and obviously in someone like His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, shows us that marriage of opposites very, very beautifully. But a lot of Buddhists, for example, a lot of Advaitin Vedantins have really gone overboard into the cool side and are not doing nearly enough work on building the love nature that they need to reflect the full nature of the full divine and privileging their coolness as if it were a kind of total awakening. It isn't. Mm-hmm. Total awakening is that dance of opposites, that mystery between the, the deep peace and the great, great holy passion. Mm-hmm. And that's what you see, of course, in the greatest mystics of all. You see that very much in Jesus, for example, and you see it in Ramakrishna, you see it in the ones who have a deep knowledge of the great peace, but are passionately concerned about all human and sentient beings. Now, one of the parts of the program on Divine Rebels that you and Carolyn created together that I really loved was the section on the dark night of the soul and the idea that these great Divine Rebels all went through And this is something you underscored, not just one dark night, but a second dark night. And I had never heard it talked about in terms of a first and then a second dark night. I wonder if you can explain that for our listeners. This is a very important point. And it really comes from both of our love of St. John of the Cross. And it's also in Islamic tradition, actually, this, this understanding. If you really see the unfolding of the path as having distinct stages, as I think I and Caroline do, then you see that the first dark night is really, as St. John says, a purification of the senses. And this is important at the beginning because when you have mystical experiences, for a moment the ego sense is clear and you see the full beauty of the full glory of the real world of the reality but you can't sustain that glimpse unless you do a massive work of purification and of rigorous spiritual discipline so the first dark night happens when you really entered into the cauldron of that purification and usually you go through very, very intense experiences of suffering and of burning and of yearning and of longing and of deep, deep meditation and adoration, which serve to purify your whole being so that you can be given the great experience that begins the second part of the path, 
experience of seeing the divine light and seeing the whole universe radiant with it and knowing that you are not two with it. This begins a wholly new process, and the Sufis have a wonderful way of describing it. They say that there are two journeys. That there's the journey to God, which is this experience of knowing that the divine light consciousness is creating everything, and that you are not two with it, and that everyone is secretly not two with it, and everything is a crystallization of it, which is the awakening experience. But it's not in any way the end of the path, because... The subtle ego remains intact. You still remain identified at subtle levels with the person having this experience. So the work of the second part of the path is to dissolve that subtle ego so that the more extraordinary levels of union can appear, the causal levels. And... This can only happen, unfortunately, by an annihilation of that subtle ego through a, an organized set of disasters and catastrophes that the divine organizes perfectly to kill the subtle ego in its deepest hiding places. And this is the second dark night, which is a terrible experience, but an amazing experience because it has two different facets. On the one hand, you are burning to death. The you is burning to death in this organized guerrilla warfare that the divine sends against you. you. Everybody has it in terms of their own temperament, their own addictions, their own fantasies, their own vanities, their own subtle, subtle addictions and vanities. But on the other hand, as this process is going through, you're not abandoned by the divine at all because as it progresses, deeper and wilder and holier and more ecstatic visions are given to you far beyond anything that you experience on that first path, which ends with the first subtle death. When this process is complete, and not very many people have ever really completed it, but when this process is complete you are crucified and resurrected at the same time. And what the classical texts, both in Islam and in Sufism, sorry, in, in Christianity, tell us, and this is what I myself experienced, and I think that it's probably the same experience that in the higher reaches of the Vajrayana and of course of Shaivism too, that whole second dark night ends with an enormous realization which far transcends the first one, in which you really know that at the very deepest levels you are the beloved and you are the beloved's beloved. And in my case, it was a vision of Christ because I've always loved Christ the most, although I revere all the teachers and all the revelations, and I saw him for 15 minutes in the church in Guayabatur. And I knew it because I'd studied both um the Islamic and Christian and the shamanic and the Vajrayana traditions that what I was being given as a sign that very long and very grueling dark night that I myself had been through was now over and that a wholly new kind of life was beginning uh, a much more consciously divine life which has enormous problems because you still have to continue to work on your shadow in fact you you work on your shadow in more and more profound ways after this has happened that you never have to go.
go through that terrible burning again because something has really been eliminated. Now, Andrew, you're saying a lot here, so I want to slow down and unpack it a little bit. How is it that one goes through this second stripping, and yet, as you say, there's still so much shadow work yet to be done? How would we know what the demarcation is? Oh, I've gone through this second dark night. I mean, let's take it even slower. How do I know the difference between the first dark night and the second? And then if shadow work is continuing, isn't this just some long, gradual process? What are the real demarcations here? Well, it's, I think this is a very complex subject, but in my experience, it's like this. The, how you know that the first dark night is over is by the first experience of the divine consciousness that I described, because that is an overwhelming experience, but it does leave the subtle ego intact, because what happens after that first experience is that you're flooded with new powers, and there's still tremendous danger, because you can be very inflated at that moment, you can have clairvoyant powers and use them for your own glory and not for the glory of God. Very many gurus, in fact most gurus, I think, have had that first dark night and then that first immense realization and then they think that they are divine. But the problem is that the subtle ego has appropriated that experience for the glory of itself, not for the divine. So another divine attack has to be mounted. And I think you know the second well, I think I know you know the second dark night because it is unbelievably atrocious. It can't I mean, it's, it's pain cannot be really described because it's not trauma. It's not um, intense suffering even. It is a crucifixion of the soul. It's when you have to face just how despotic and serial killerish your desire for power is even after you've grasped the divine nature of your true self. And you can't heal yourself on your own because... You simply don't know, nobody knows just how diseased that true, subtle ego, that appropriate power-drunk ego is. Then the dark night works on you, and usually it's a long process, and then you really do know when its fundamental work has been done by an infusion of much deeper, greater, more radiant divine consciousness. And that becomes another station, another level of how you live your life and how you experience life. But if you are on a path of radiant embodiment, which I'm on, which is the path of um, divine love in the body, you still have to deal with the life that you've created karmically before this experience. You still have to deal with the exigencies of the body. You still have to deal with the ever deeper and ever more revealing and ever more difficult shadow of your own relationship to the world. And, and that goes on, but, but you have a much, much greater force in you to help you deal with it. In fact, the revelations of your own shadow and the danger of it and the danger of the shadow of the world become almost unbearably intense in this after the second dark night because what you are then engaged in doing is more and more deeply embodying the divine in your mind, heart, and cells, and in your actions, 
And you will still find that from your previous self and from your karmic self, all kinds of activities, all kinds of samskaras continue in a ghostly way, which you need to work on. And of course, you need they, when the clearer your eyesight becomes, the more dangerous the dark that you ignore appears. So the process of embodiment, the process of the path of Orbindo, the process of part of the Christ, the process of birthing the divine in matter, is an endless process. But after the second dark night, you've got much more to work with. Much more is working in you to help you endure the great, great difficulties and grueling shadow work and tremendous suffering that you still have to endure. If you read Aurobindo, for example, who had both dark nights and extraordinary divine experience, you'll see that right at the end of his life, he's, he's still talking about the grueling demands of this process of embodiment. But he's not talking about it hysterically. He's just saying this is how it is. This is how the process is. And you've just got to be strong enough to do it. And you will be strong enough because by then you'll know that you... Your whole foundation is divine consciousness. So, Andrew, I'm curious, you know, I hear people use a term like shadow work, and I'm curious what that actually looks like for you. How do you, Andrew Harvey, do shadow work as this divine being in a human body? How do you work with your own shadow? Well, I wouldn't ever claim that. I mean, my God, I'd be struck by lightning, but I... I, I claimed it. Yeah, I'm allowed to say what I want to, Andrew. You say your part, I say <laughs> Well, I think the truth is that in the last six years, I have understood that I needed help, and I've had an amazing journey with a very, very great, ruthless, and astonishing union analyst, Nathan Schwartz-Salant, who's written tremendous books, but much more importantly, is an absolute master of humility, and who knows the embodiment process because he's himself um, engaged in it, and he's further on, he's in his early 70s, and he's absolutely ruthless and every single week I just open my life to him and he helps me see where I'm still falling into traps that come from my relationship with my past and from um, mistakes that I've made and from exaggerations and from hysterias and from misunderstandings of spiritual awakenings that I'm still wrestling with and I have really loved this journey. It's something that keeps me constantly, constantly aware of how I can, even at the stage that God has given me, and I'm so grateful that at 60, which I will be next month, I have been given so much, but even with all of what I've been given, I still remain a fool and capable of being blinded. and, And I think it's very important because for me, I don't I think we have to be both in the Tibetan sense divinely proud. We have to claim the majesty of what has been given to us. But we also constantly have to be aware of the infinite subtlety of the secret trickster within us and of the ghostly hangovers of the past. And Rumi had this wonderful there's a wonderful story of Rumi and his the late 60s, which always moves me and grounds me, and it was really something I consider to be definitive about authentic realization. He 
a young man came to see him from Constantinople had heard about the great king of mystics and he walked all the way from Constantinople to Konya and when he came to Konya he saw Rumi, this wonderful astounding old man coming towards him and he fell on the ground in prostration before Rumi he got up and he saw Rumi prostrating to him 32 times and he freaked out as you can imagine, he said what the hell are you doing my god you are the sultan of mystics and I'm nobody and Rumi said three things, he said um why wouldn't I bow down before one of the servants of God? And then he said, the prophet said, blessed is the being who is just in his honor and humble in his wealth and chaste in his beauty. And then he said something completely astonishing, but I think is the key. He said, if I did not show my nothingness, what would I be useful for? And he was doing so many things by that extraordinary those six series of actions and quotations and utterances, he was really saying, look, golden shadow which you're projecting onto me, but you are everything that you see in me. Get real about your own work, your own realization, the majesty of your own divine consciousness. That was the first thing. And then he was also pointing out that if you don't constantly, constantly know your nothingness, your emptiness, your poverty, your stupidity, which belong to you as a human being and don't go away, are a constant companion, a constant reminder to be ever humbler, ever more radically awake to the slightest nuance of misjudgment or hysteria or cruelty or arrogance. The very thing that ennobles you will become your greatest enemy. You think that you're so much bigger. You think you're God and you're not God. You're the divine in the human, in this strange mystery of a dance of opposites. So the one side that is divine rejoices and laughs and celebrates, and the other side, which is human, is very, very canny indeed, and very shrewd and very tough-minded with itself. And in the greatest human beings, I think you see that magnificent combination. I think you see it in the Dalai Lama, because the Dalai Lama is at a very high level of realization, and yet he's so constantly humble, and it's not an act. He has this balance perfectly, this mystery balance. And I think he's a supreme example to us all. And B had it because B used to radiate divine light. And I once asked him, thinking that he'd give me some sumptuous, extraordinary answer. You know, I was still a young seeker. I wanted something with flashing lights. And I asked him, what is true holiness? And he said... True holiness is knowing just how much your shadow can sabotage you at any moment. And that is the definitive answer for me, because it doesn't mean that you deny the divine living in you, but it means that you keep constantly awake to the ways in which you can betray that by your human madness. Lacan said, and it's an amazing phrase, he said that, Great wisdom is to know how limited by your madness you are. That's one side of it. The other side of it is to know how unlimited by your divine identity you are. And if you can bring the knowledge of the limitation by your karmic madness together in union with the wisdom of the knowledge of your divine identity, then you'll always be humble enough and awake enough to be taken deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in the endless Well, I love that answer, but I'm going to take it just a little bit further in one sense, which is, you know, I asked you how you do shadow work in your life, and you said, you know, I've been working with this analyst. Well, 
I I do it by just looking at my reactions to people in my life. I, uh-huh. You know, who do I love too much or too intensely? Who is it that I'm obsessing with? Who is it that I can't stand? And more and more, I am understanding that when I become obsessed with somebody's beauty or somebody's splendor, for example, I'm always so, so overwhelmed when I see the Dalai Lama. But nowadays, instead of projecting my golden shadow onto him, I take back the projection and I try and really, really work on the aspects of myself that are like him instead of projecting onto him all the work I don't want to do on myself. And I'm very aware of my tendency to a golden shadow because I, my deep gift is adoration, but it has the shadow of projecting onto others like Rumi and Jesus and Dalai Lama. What now at this stage in my life I should be owning for myself is to be responsible for myself because I've been given enough to get going in that way so I can no longer indulge in that kind of projection without feeling dirty I feel I'm feeling shameful and really it's one of the most dangerous of the shadows and then when I find myself reacting tremendously scathingly to people as I do god you know when you talk when I find myself outraged at the CEO that is strip mining Ecuador or outraged at the idiocy of the republicans or outraged at the slothful, narcissistic, self-absorbed, endlessly boring, awful garbage that's out there in the name of God in the New Age, the secret, for example, I really examine myself because I really ask myself, why am I so angry? Why does this hurt me so much? What is behind this anger and this hurt? And more and more I'm uncovering, first of all, that I've done all of this that I can't stand outside. I've been guilty of magical thinking. I'm like an alcoholic who has given up drink, who, who, who's tremendously puritanical about other alcoholics. And this side of my nature I find repulsive, and I'm working on it because it, it could damage very much the clarity and the purity of the teaching that I'm trying to bring through, as well as limit whatever realization I'm trying for, because unless I can embrace the pain in the dissociation of the CEO, the the, the denial of suffering behind the denial of global warming in the Republican, etc., etc., how will I ever be able to have the skillful means and the kindness to help those people unless I don't recognize them, unless I recognize them in myself? It's very, very difficult work. And it's um, very demanding work, and it's. I'll give you an example from this last weekend because I gave a. I had one of the great weekends of my life. I was in Nashville, and I was invited to teach on all the things I care about the most: Rumi, the Mother, um, sacred activism, and the Christ consciousness. I mean, my God, they laid out a table and a feast, and I was thrilled to go. And it was a thrilling time. People really things, and I really gave the very best that I've ever done. But I found myself at one moment sort of raging in the secret and saying, my God, how can we even begin to tolerate this absurdity in the name of the divine? And a woman got up and said, I understand what you're saying, but I was tremendously empowered by certain things in the secret. And I realized she was completely sincere. And I had a choice at that moment. 
And I think the old Andrew would say, my God, why don't you read the authentic mystics and get off this idiocy and realize that what you think of as empowerment is just the beginning. And that kind of scornful, or, which might have been in a way accurate, but would have been incredibly unhelpful. But instead, because I've really tried to work on that side of myself and continue to work on it because I know it is a really important area, I found myself saying, thank you so much. I must never forget that there were people who were woken up by the the, 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 the truths that are hidden in this miasma. And I said, thank you so much for being brave enough to say that, and I'm, I'll try and temper whatever I say about it and be wiser about how I present it. So that's how I do shadow work. Thank you. That's what I was looking to hear about. It's very helpful, helpful to me, and I think helpful to our listeners. Do you find that you find that it's it's very difficult, isn't it? It's, but I think that those are the two areas which we probably need to, all of us need to look at the most. The ones where we project our the qualities in us that we don't want to do the work to live out onto others, and rest in the kind of narcissistic stupor before the brilliance and beauty and realization of others and just don't bother to do the work ourselves and that's what the genius of the Buddha saying you know go and work out your own salvation with diligence don't premier me right and then the, the our, our extraordinary emotional reactivity which the afflictive emotions which are which don't go away I think they they are always there but you become much much more skillful through shadow work through rigorous shadow work in being able to deal with them and Andrew, I just want to end on this one note, which is there was one sentence from the Divine Rebels recording that I wrote down and underlined, and it was just so beautiful. And I want to end on this note, which is the statement, love is the ultimate rebellion. How do you understand that? How is our love the ultimate rebellion? Yes. That was Caroline, wasn't it? But I remember I'd written it out in red letters in my own book. It was such a wonderful, wonderful statement. I think that that's one of the great statements because the choice to go forward in fear or in love, in rejection or in the deep, unconditional, compassionate embrace is something that every moment poses. So love is the ultimate rebellion because... It's the ultimate rebellion against the whole structure of separation that keeps us trapped from the great unity of reality. And of course, it's the ultimate rebellion too, because if you truly follow that love, as we said, the the distinction between the path of knowledge and the path of love, you will be driven by that love to be aghast at what's going on in the world and you will hunger and thirst after righteousness and after justice then you will have to do something about it you have to step forward and witness those things and let the chips fall where they may that will be your rebellion the whole life will become rebellion as I hope mine is and will continue to be I've been speaking with Andrew Harvey along with Carolyn Mace He has created a new 13-session series called Divine Rebels, Saints, Mystics, Holy Change Agents, and You. And this is a series that includes a training 
on how to be a divine rebel in our world today. Andrew has also recorded with Sounds True a program called The Song of the Sun. It's a beautiful series on the life, poetry, and teachings of Rumi, along with an audio program called The Direct Path, How to Walk the Mystical Path in Your Life Using Contemplation, Prayer, and Service. Andrew, as always, it's wonderful to talk with you and to grow with you and walking the path of divine rebels together. It's a great joy for me. It's amazing. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It's always extraordinary to work with you because you're so precise. You've got such a surgeon's scalpel, and I've always loved that in you. It's thrilling to talk to you, and I hope we have many, many chances to continue this beautiful, holy conversation between our souls. SoundsTree.com. Many voices, one journey. Thank you.